This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Five, four, three, two, one, zero. Ignition. Major Garrett. Yes, CBS. Yes, hi. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Major Garrett. From the nation's capital. Major Fantastic. It's The Takeout. Major. With CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent. Major, that's nonsense. Major Garrett. And you should know better. Thank you. Welcome to the very best part of my broadcast week. I'm Major Garrett, host and creator of The Takeout. However you find this program on on podcast platforms and the numbers there are multiplying each and every week. We welcome everyone on the podcast platforms across the country and the world finding this program. Or on CBSN, CBS's digital streaming news channel or on more than 70 radio stations around the country and also Sirius XM POTUS channel 124. However you find this show, welcome. It's great to have you with us. So we're going to have a conversation today with someone who was pretty significant and pretty visible in the latter years of the Trump administration. And we're going to talk about issues that are incredibly relevant in the nation's capital and nationwide right now. The security situation at the United States Capitol, domestic violent extremism in the United States, the very enormous shift in immigration policy from one administration, the Trump administration, to the current Biden administration, and other matters, cybersecurity, other things. And who are we going to talk to about all of that? Well, he was the last acting secretary of the Department of Homeland Security. His name is Chad Wolf. While he was at the Department of Homeland Security, he was also undersecretary for a good long while. He was chief of staff to one of the DHS secretaries, Kirsten Nielsen. Chad Wolf, it's great to have you on the program. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, well, thanks for having me. Looking forward to it. So uh, I think you would agree that saying uh, Mr. Former Acting Secretary is kind of a broadcast mouthful. So uh, if you prefer, I'll say Chad or Mr. Wolf, whatever you prefer. Yeah, we'll go with Chad. <laughs> okay, Chad. Today is March 4th. I want to let everyone know when we're recording this, the morning of March 4th, and the security posture at the nation's capital is heightened because there have been warnings, new fresh warnings, about the threat of militant groups attempting to breach the Capitol. As you hear those and read those, Chad Wolf, what is your conclusion? Well, I guess let me let me just start off by saying, obviously, the events of January 6th, and I said it at the time on January the 6th, were both uh, sickening and, and tragic. Uh, so we need to make sure that as public officials or these former public officials, we call out all forms of violence, and we do that pretty pretty rapidly, uh, whether you're the president of the United States or you're a member of Congress or, or, or the like. So I'll just say that up front. Now, I think what you're really asking about, Major, is you know the security posture around the Capitol today, the security perimeter around the Capitol today, and then some of the intel that has been reported on in the last 24 to 48 hours. And so I don't read that intel anymore as I once did. Uh, but what I know, and I've kind of picked up here and there, it looks like it's a general reporting. So there, we all, I always at the department, whether it was general threat reporting or more specific and what we call credible and specific threat, which is really pointing and getting some specifics. So you have a date, time, place, 
and you know things that uh, potentially could happen. And those are two different types of intelligence. Um, I believe what they have right now when we talk about March 4th is just some general chatter, uh, whether they pick it up on open source or they pick it up on other sources, some general chatter about March 4th and and the U.S. Capitol. And, 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 Ch- and Chad, that general chatter does seem to me to take on a greater relevance because there was general chatter before January 6th. And people now look back at that general chatter in a way they didn't on January 5th. True? I think that's right. Uh, obviously, there's some differences between uh, March 4th and January 6th. January 6th, there was a a planned event. Uh, we knew 25 to 35,000 people would be there. There were permits. You know, it was advertised well in advance, at least as far as the the number of folks that were converging there on the ellipse and the mall, uh, and then eventually the Capitol. So that we knew. I don't believe that they, there's any type of formal protest coming on March the 4th. I could be wrong about that. I've not heard about there that. There is not. So they are not anticipating permitted protest, large groups, or anything of that nature. I think this is more, again, just some general chatter, but you're absolutely right. Obviously, the events of January 6th are now, you're overlaying that with everything moving forward when you talk about security around the U.S. Capitol or even in the National Capitol region. So, you know, folks like the U.S. Capitol Police, uh, even my former, you know, Department DHS and FBI, they're going to be overly cautious about what they pick up, um, and they're going to make sure they share that. Uh, but whether, but I think it's a little bit, it does come up a little bit short of what I would consider specific and, and really credible, uh, you know, threat reporting or intelligence. Someone who I believe you know pretty well, Representative Mike McCall, Republican of Texas, he has the ranking position on the House Homeland Security Committee, said yesterday or this week, quote, I think President Trump has a responsibility to tell them, meeting the domestic extremists, to stand down. This threat is credible. It's real. Do you agree with that? Again, I haven't seen the threat. Uh, so I assume what he's referring to is the, the March 4th. Uh, you know. But do you believe President Trump has an obligation to say something in this context or in this atmosphere? Well, I certainly uh, said that when he was president uh, in the events of January 6th. Uh, I indicated I, you know, I believe that he needed to come out sooner, quicker uh, to condemn the violence and certainly talk to his supporters uh, about that. Um, so I would continue to encourage him to do so. Obviously, he's out of office now. Uh, they may or may not still listen to him. Um, he doesn't have the platform as he once did. You know, he's not on social media. He's not on all of these things. So uh, I think there is some difference between, you know, a president in power using those types of uh, medium versus one that is not. Um, you know, what, I, I, what I would say, uh, because I think the reporting here has also been March 4th, they are looking at signs of militia type activity, right? These are extremist groups. These have always existed. And you know that, Major. These have always existed uh, throughout the history of the United States. So it's not something new. Uh, could they be more emboldened now or could they be more po- uh, or have a higher visibility because of social media? Well, that's certainly the case. And of course, everyone's certainly more on alert given the events of January the 6th as well. To that point, Chad, again, Chad Wolf, former acting secretary of the Department of Homeland Security, is our special guest. This week, the FBI director, Director Chris Wray, testified that domestic terrorism, this is his set of words, quote, is metastasizing across the country. Anyone who has any experience with cancer, either to read about it or to experience, knows metastasizing is a very bad thing. Do you agree with that general assessment that it is metastasizing domestic violent extremists and terrorists 
are metastasizing across the country. I would generally agree with that. Um, I'd have to understand exactly the context he was saying it in, but uh, generally so. I mean, before I left uh, DHS, we put out a homeland threat assessment. The very first one, which is a public document where we talk about the threats of domestic terrorism and violent extremists uh, to the U.S. and how it's a growing, growing uh, threat within the homeland. Uh, so we've certainly seen that and we've seen the shift, at least I did at the department, away from foreign terrorist organizations, FTOs, uh, that we saw on 9-11 and more of that homegrown domestic terrorism. Now, why is it metastasizing? Why do we see an increase in it? One, because the U.S. has done a very good job about fighting ISIS and Al-Qaeda and others in theater and cutting off their ability to reach the homeland. So now you're getting more and more folks uh, inspired over the internet and social media and the internet has really exploded this ability to uh, foster these extremist views and lone offenders or small groups, uh, which is again, what we said is the biggest threat uh, now facing the homeland. So the, the rise in social media, the rise in the internet has allowed um, you know, the domestic terrorism threat here in the U.S. to really grow in a way that it hasn't been, you know, let's say, 15 years ago. I'm going to set you up. We've got about a minute to go before our first break, and I'll let you launch into this, and then we'll pick it up on the other side of the break. But there is a term that I've come across, accelerationists. And they have been described to me as people who are domestic extremists who want to accelerate a civil war in this country or violence. Oath Keepers, Three Percenters, Proud Boys, Boogaloo Boys, and the like. Take 40 seconds, and then we'll take a pause, and you can finish more on the other side. Begin to educate my audience about what this actually means. Yeah, again, these are, uh, again, extremist groups that we see uh, mainly on the right, uh, but from a militia standpoint, uh, that certainly just have a, they want a different form of government. They want to uh, maybe overthrow the government, but they they want a different form of government at the end of the day. It's not necessarily very different than anarchists. Uh, they have... They come about some of their aspirations and, and goals in a different way and from a different view, but both are very unhappy with current government of the United States. Um, and it's not necessarily political leadership, although there is some, uh, some of that. It's just the overall nature of how the U.S. is structured from a government perspective. They'd like to see a change of that, and they were gonna, they're going to take action for that. Chad Wolf is our special guest. More on these, this topic generally and accelerationist specifically on the other side of this break. I'm Major Garrett. You're listening to and thoroughly enjoying The Takeout. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. 
Welcome back. Chad Wolf, the last acting secretary of the Department of Homeland Security of the Trump administration, is our guest. Chad, continuing this conversation about accelerationists, uh, Proud Boys, Boogaloo Boys, Oath Keepers, Three Percenters, they were there on January 6th. What does that tell us? What ought that tell us about any nexus implied or real between them and the Trump movement? Well, again, I think these are um, this is these are different groups uh, that uh, certainly identify with a certain political ideology. Again, I don't want to keep going back to it, but I will. What we saw, obviously, during the summer in various cities around the country was a different type of movement. It was Antifa and anarchists that identified with a different type of political ideology at the end of the day. And so I think we, we you know, we need to be careful. And my position at the department, and that continues to be the department's position, is we need to make sure that we call out violence across the spectrum, far right, far left, everything in between. And I think there is some perception because there wasn't a lot of uh, uh, individuals, elected officials during the summer really calling out what was occurring that in some ways did that help fuel what occurred in January? I don't know that it did, but there is some criticism on that front. And I understand that because I was I was out there very visible during the summer talking about mm-hmm. calling out violence as I was on January the 6th. So I think that's important that we do it across the front. I would say from a, I think what most people wanna see is more prosecutions, more investigations into these groups. Uh, and that's mm-hmm. certainly led by what, the Department of Justice uh, as they do based that. On your- Based on your knowledge, then and now, was Antifa involved in any significant way in January 6th? I don't have any in- information or intelligence that says that they were. But again, gotcha. I stopped looking at intelligence uh, shortly after January the 6th when I left. And you left on January 6th. Why? Was it in direct oh, protest no. what right. the president did not do? No, I, I stepped down on January the 11th um, uh, right. as acting secretary. Um, it wasn't necessary for a variety of different reasons. Uh, one of which was the authority of the acting secretary, my authority, and the individual that held that spot before me was being uh, challenged. And we were losing court cases uh, pretty regularly. So I wanted to make sure the department was set up as they were transitioning to a Biden administration to make sure that things were not continuing to get uh, litigated over time. So I thought it was the right time for me to to step down at that point. So for those uh, who are trying to figure out what happened on January 6th, at the department before January 6th. Right. Was there a conversation about designating January 6th? Because as you mentioned earlier, it was a planned event as right. a special security event. Uh, many have testified from the former Capitol Hill police chief to the sergeant at arms of the House and the Senate that there was no correspondence or communication from DHS about doing so. Designating yeah, I, it a special I, security I event. And, and if, it had, if it had been, there might've been a different uh, approach. Yeah, I don't necessarily uh, agree with that. I think you're talking about an NSSE, which is a national special security mm-hmm. event, something that we designate for like the inauguration or the Super Bowl or these high iconic uh, events. I will say NSSEs are uh, worked on six, seven months in advance. Uh, it has to do with funding. It has to do with a, a variety of different mechanisms and steps. And I will also say an NSSE does not, or, or the lack of a designation does not prevent law enforcement from doing their job and securing facilities because we do it every day. You know, there's been a number of protests over the summer, July 4th, there was a big one here in DC, as you recall, was not designated as an NSSE uh, or none of those were, the election was, you know, there are a variety of events every day that law enforcement responds to in, in DC and outside of DC that, that not are designated for that. So I don't think that designation 
is the silver bullet going to solve a problem or not solve the problem? But yes, there were numerous conversations leading up to the six, not only within the department, but with DOD, with the Department of Interior, the National Park Service, MPD, Capitol Police, about what we are seeing a generalized threat. I don't think at the end of the day, my view that January 6th was not an intelligence failure because you, you knew how many, you knew when they were coming, you knew where they were coming. And what we heard from testimony, I believe a week ago, is that the FBI you know, field report from Norfolk was shared with the U.S. Capitol mm-hmm. Police on January the 5th. So you had- Were this you aware of that report? I was not. I was never made aware of that on uh, at any time prior to the 6th. Uh, Would you regard that as a lapse? From a DHS perspective, I, I guess, Major, what I would tell you is that any law enforcement agency would know the atmosphere in which they were working in, which is you have a obviously a disputed election. You have a number of protests leading up to the election and then after the election, some of which were very violent. And you're going to have 35,000 people show up in D.C. You have to plan for the worst. That is your job as a law enforcement and a first responder is you plan for the worst. We did that at DHS. We called in more folks to protect our facilities within the National Capital Region. And I think the Capitol Police are having to to explain why they did not plan for the very worst. And look, if it doesn't occur, it doesn't occur. And you have to pay a lot of people overtime and you have people standing around. But I think that's what in this type of environment they should have been doing, um, you know, come early January. This week, the uh, major general in charge of the District of Columbia National Guard is a gentleman named William Walker testified that it took three hours and 19 minutes to get approval from the Pentagon for the National Guard to show up to reinforce Capitol Police and D.C. Metropolitan Police at the Capitol. Is that a failure? Well, I'd say that's that, that is certainly too long. I've, I was not involved in any of those discussions about between the National Guard, MPD, Capitol Police and DOD. Obviously, that that takes place outside of DHS. What I will tell you is, though, that we offered uh, a number of DHS law enforcement assets to the Capitol Police shortly after, I believe it was 2 p.m. when most of this started getting getting started. Uh, Capitol Police turned us down initially uh, and they said, no, we've got it under control. We eventually did send about 100 or so Secret Service uh, agents up there uh, to help them at the end of the day. But I'm not sure that there was a lot of clarity coming out of Capitol Police at that time as well but why it took two hours or three hours to get National Guard approved from a DOD perspective. I just, I don't have insight. I wasn't on those phone calls. Was there within the administration any awareness of any communication from President Trump to discourage the deployment of assets to improve the security posture of the Capitol or the Capitol region? Again, not not from my uh, knowledge and not on the, the phone calls I was on. That was never never discussed. Have you been asked to testify before any of these various committees yeah. about January 6th? No. Would you be willing to? Yeah, I think, you know, again, I, DHS is a small player uh, when it comes to the to the security of particularly the Capitol, but also in the right. NCR. Obviously, our Federal Protective Service uh, sent out uh, some guidance to their law enforcement partners, as well as our Intelligence and Analysis Division sent out intel. So I think, you know, the biggest thing that I think DHS and DHS did testify uh, yesterday, I believe it was an intelligence and analysis official. That's really what DHS is. How do we provide information to our state and local partners? Uh, And we are a consumer of intelligence, just like most folks are. And then we do some open source report, uh, you know, collection as well. And then we share that. But I think all of the outside of the FBI uh, Norfolk bulletin, 
I think the general information that was being shared was just a general heightened threat environment. And then you need to scale up your protective measures accordingly. And we certainly did that at DHS. Um, and then I think, you know, others will have to question and answer why they didn't do that as well. I'm interested in the fact that you said this was not an intelligence failure because one of your former colleagues at DHS, Ken Cuccinelli, described it exactly as that, an intelligence failure. So was it an intelligence success and an operational failure? Yeah, again, I, you know, Ken, uh, I respect Ken. Uh, I didn't hear those comments. I don't know that, it, again, when you know how many, you know who, you know when, uh, they're coming for. Now, I, I think what is most critical that most folks are taking a look at is why didn't we have more intelligence say that they were going to storm the Capitol, that they were going to try to you know, break through the barriers? You, you always want that type of granular intelligence for any type of law enforcement operation. Would love to have that. And if it was out there to that level of degree and clarity and credibility, and that wasn't shared. Yes, I would say that is a failure. That's not what occurred here in my understanding of it. So when I say it's not an intelligence failure, because there was a lot of intelligence there. I think it was a lack of, of planning. It was a lack of execution of a plan if one was in place that did not occur at the end of the day, uh, where we know a lot of other facilities around D.C. were heavily protected and fortified, um, except for one. So a phrase that was uh, memorable in the 9-11 Commission report might apply, a failure of imagination. Chad Wolf is our special guest. I'm Major Garrett. You're listening to and watching and, as always, enjoying The Taken. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Chad Wolf is our guest. He was the last acting secretary of the Department of Homeland Security in the Trump administration. Chad, did you or the agency while you were there have a blind spot about domestic violent extremism? Oh, I don't think so. You know, I think we get a lot of criticism just because, you know, that's out there. Oh, of course, the criticism is out there. Uh, But I will say, you know, starting all the way back in, um, September, I want to say September of 2019, we put out a strategy. I was in the policy office as the under or the acting undersecretary at that point, where we talked about uh, violent extremists, where we talked about white supremacy, where we talked about uh, terrorism prevention and, and, and the like, which is you know focused here domestically. We were talking about that after the, the shooting uh, in the Walmart in El Paso and Dayton and other places around the country that occurred back in in 2019. So the the department was very vocal. It didn't get any pickup. It didn't get any play from most of the media. Most of the media at that time was just focusing, obviously, on what the president was saying or not saying and the criticism there. And a lot of the department's actions were were going unnoticed and not reported on. We followed that up with grant programs. We followed that up with- Chad, let me stop you right there. Would it have helped if the president had vocalized some of the things you were talking about? I'd say it always helps. I mean, the president's got a huge platform. So whether it's President Trump, President Biden or others, um, if they're able to amplify anything, you know, a lot of folks are listening to uh, the president versus perhaps an individual cabinet department. And there are those, I know you know this, who look at the president and say, if ever given the opportunity, he not only didn't amplify what DHS was saying and reporting, he looked the other way and gave 
if not aid and comfort, rhetorical space for extremist groups on the right. Would you agree or disagree with that? Well, I don't know that I would completely agree with that. Um, again, my focus at the time was what the department was doing uh, under our authorities, what we could do more of. And again, from DHS, I think there's a lot of misconception about what we can and can't do. So we don't prosecute and we don't investigate uh, domestic terrorism events. Obviously, that's the Department of Justice and that's the FBI. And we will help them out if called upon. Uh, but the major role that the department plays is to make sure that we share information with our state and local partners. And we do that through about 80 fusion centers around the country. And then that we are doing more preventative measures. And we have a, a 10 to $20 million grant program uh, that we give to folks in different communities around the country to hope to identify individuals that are prone to radicalization, to violence. And how do we off ramp them? And how do we talk to these individuals so they don't get to that point to where they're, they're committing these acts? So that's what the department does. And that's what I, I was focused on. And that's what we talked about in our strategy. And that's what we talked about in the Homeland Threat Assessment, uh, which came out in uh, October, I believe, October of 2020. Uh, we're going to get to immigration in just a second. But one last place I want to talk about, which is Portland, Oregon. And I want to talk about something you raised earlier, which is uh, extremists on the left. Uh, and Tifa, you mentioned, uh, what is your takeaway and your retrospective view of Portland? And do you have any regrets? And do you think the federal government under the Trump administration should have any regrets or offer any explanations or apologies for the deployment of federal officials who might have had some insignia, but they were hard to recognize and they were there deployed to improve security? I understand but also to preemptively arrest people uh, in the context of what was going on in Portland. I know I asked you a lot there. Take it away. So, Garrett, I think this is just... Continue. You call me Major. Yeah, sorry, Major. It just continues to be a misconception and just a false narrative about that. I think a lot of what you just said um, has been debunked over, over time. I've done congressional hearings on this. I've talked excessively with the press. Uh, I think our measures there in Portland, you have to understand what was going on in Portland, very different than DC or any other country, any other place. We had a facility, a courthouse. So you had a federal building, much like a Capitol, obviously it's not a Capitol, but it is a federal building where judges, prosecutors, and others went to work every day that was trying, that was being burnt down and destroyed by violent extremists. There are some similarities to January 6th. Same thing occurred. You had a federal building trying to be destroyed by violent extremists. We had local officials who were not doing anything. They told their police, stand down. Local police were doing very little to stop these individuals. They were amassing across the street, 10 feet across the street from the courthouse every night between midnight and 5 a.m., explosives and other things going on at this building. So absolutely, it's our job as law enforcement, DHS law enforcement, and we have authority to protect that building and we had to do that. So this idea that we're somehow heavy handed or I've, the criticism is we instigated more violence. I think that notion is absurd on its face that somehow law enforcement doing the job that Congress told them to do is somehow instigating violence. Protecting a federal courthouse from being burned down is somehow instigating violence. You talked about some of the insignia and some of the, the uh, you know, perhaps uniforms uh, that they wore. These are folks that are, are trained in riot control and, and big crowds, and some of them come from the border because they operate in that environment at ports of entry and other places that get rushed uh, from the border. So they have that type of training. This is what they wear every day. So when we deployed them, they came with their uniforms. Um, we tried to switch out their uniforms quicker. We just weren't able to do that. 
in, in, a, in a timely manner. You talked about proactive arrest. Again, when you have individuals committing acts of violence, criminal acts in most cases, and no one's arresting them, they would simply walk across the street and say, you can't touch us because we're off of federal property. Uh, usually in every other city, you have local law enforcement arresting people on the spot. They weren't doing that in Portland. Um, so we used our authority and we do have the authority to arrest people off federal property, as long as it's adjacent to the federal property. And so we did that in a handful, I think it was under, under six times um, and, and did that. And I know a couple of those have made the news about that, but this is, uh, you know, uh, I'm actually extremely proud of what we did in Portland. I think history uh, will judge what we did. We, of course, we could have always improved. There's always things that you could do better um, in hindsight. Um, but I think the congressional hearing that we had in July, I think it was late July, um, proved that what we did uh, was correct on a, on a multiple fronts. Did uh, leftist extremists corrupt what were going on during the day in Portland, which were, as the community often said, peaceful protests? Yeah, and I, I said that repeatedly. I must have said that uh, 50 different times, which is Throughout the day and even into early evening, up until about seven or eight o'clock, there were peaceful protests right in front of that courthouse, right across the street in the park, uh, which went on. And you didn't really hear any any news about that because they they occurred. There was no violence. Everything was fine. And DHS law enforcement officers actually protected some of those folks, as, you know, exercising their First Amendment right. We had no issues with that. We didn't deploy all of our officers during the day or inside the courthouse. You didn't even see any of them. It was only when it got really, really violent, again, between about midnight and 5 a.m. every night for about 60 or 70 nights in a row, you had, you had multiple IEDs being thrown at officers at the building, fireworks, lasers shown in their eyes. You have some law enforcement officers that are going to have permanent eye damage because of the lasers uh, put in their eyes. So it was only during those period of uh, hours during the night where we would deploy, where we would make arrests. And you would see some of that video. And if, you know, I'm sure you can Google and, and your listeners can Google a lot of the video of that time. It's pretty, uh, pretty graphic. From your vantage point, uh, was the 2020 election a free and fair presidential election? Yeah, I think it was. I think there were probably some anomalies uh, given the COVID restrictions and some of the different uh, election uh, changes that were made at the end of the day that I know uh, gave some concern about mail-in ballots and absent, you know, not absentee, but mail-in ballots. I think that was the concern that a lot of folks, uh, but from my perspective, and again, from us, uh, our, our cybersecurity and infrastructure security agency uh, was responsible for a couple of different things. One, making sure there was no cyber uh, attacks to the election infrastructure. Which they were very, and they were not at, very successful at uh, making sure there was no foreign in interference, foreign influence into that election cycle. Again, very successful at. What DHS does not do, I want to be clear about this, what DHS does not do is election fraud, um, looking Understood. at individual states. So I leave that to the Department of Justice. I know there's been a lot of lawsuits that have not uh, you know, gone anywhere. Um, so again, that's outside of what we looked at at uh, DHS at the time. But for what your equities were, it was not a rigged or stole election, was it? No, from a cyber and a foreign influence standpoint, uh, we saw very little to almost none. Excellent. Chad Wolf is our special guest. He was the last acting secretary of the Department of Homeland Security during the Trump administration. Stay tuned for a conversation about the differences in immigration policy, Trump administration to Biden administration. That's coming up next. I'm Major Garrett. Stay tuned to the next segment of The Takeout.
Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Get up to 30% off well-crafted and personalized gifts from participating shops until May 12th. This year, embrace your creative side. You know, the side your mom gave you? And shop Etsy for custom jewelry, style pieces, home decor, and extra special items she'll adore. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back. Chad Wolf, the last acting secretary of the Department of Homeland Security of the Trump administration, is our guest. Mr. Secretary Chad, you're no longer secretary. Uh, What is your assessment of the decisions made so far by President Biden on immigration? He has taken, I think it is fair to say, if not a 180, probably a 150 from the Trump administration. Yeah, I think that's a fair uh, assessment. I think what I have seen... um, that the Biden administration has done either through uh, policy changes, executive orders, uh, and certainly through an immigration bill that was introduced in Congress uh, about a week or so ago. Uh, In my view is a lot of these actions are actually very, very dangerous because what they are doing in um, taking together is they are fueling a crisis uh, that we see on the border today. And what do I mean by that? Is they're incentivizing Uh, vulnerable populations to continue to come to that border because they believe either rightly or wrongly uh, that if they make it to that border and they cross that border, that they will be released into the United States, whether or not they have a legitimate claim of uh, persecution, asylum or not. uh, Their goal at the end of the day is to get released into the border, uh, into the interior of the United States. And look, I think a lot of them are coming because there are dire economic conditions, both in Mexico and Central America. I sympathize with that. And there is a but there is a right way to come if you're looking for economic opportunities. And it's not to claim asylum, which we know is not used for that purpose. Right. One of the differences in policy is under the Trump administration, if you came to the border as an unaccompanied child, you were expelled and you did not have a hearing for an asylum claim. Should the Biden administration return to that? The Biden administration, as you've heard, says that's just simply inhumane. That's not who America is. Should it return to that policy? Uh, but they're doing that today, to be clear, Major. So any any unaccompanied uh, child from Mexico is getting returned back to Mexico within hours. Uh, what they are simply saying is any child from Central America, Honduras, Guatemala, or El Salvador, who comes all the way through Mexico, uh, makes a very dangerous journey and makes it to the border, those are the individuals they're not returning. Um, and so is that wrong? Well, again, what you're doing is you're fueling a crisis. You're sending a signal to every trafficker, smuggler and cartel that pick up a kid, get them to the border. They will get in because there is no there's no immigration uh, you know, mechanism to deal with these folks. So whether it's MPP, which is our migrant protection protocols mm-hmm. or the Title 42 authority, which is a public health authority, to be clear, it's not an immigration authority. So what the Biden administration has said is there is a public health order from the CDC that says these types of groups really shouldn't stay in Border Patrol custody because of the the COVID environment. But the Biden administration has said, we'll enforce that on single adults. We may enforce that on some population of families. We're not endorsing that or imploring that at all with children. So either there's a public health emergency and it applies to everyone or it should apply to no one. Uh, instead, they're they're picking and choosing which populations to apply it to. You know as well as I do, Chad, that the Biden administration has a very hard time with the 
word crisis. Many critics say there is a crisis. The numbers are going up. As I read this morning, uh, there are children uh, being held 77 hours in detention facilities. That's uh, five hours longer under, than uh, permissible under U.S. federal law. Is there a crisis, and is the administration, the Biden administration, negligent in acknowledging it? I do. I do believe there's a crisis, and I could, you know, I could point to a dozen different reasons on on why there is a crisis. I mean, you have HHS um, building tent facilities. You have DHS looking at building tent facilities, which I know because we did it in 2019 is not a small endeavor for the department. It takes significant resources to do you're that. Sending more agents to the border too to do you're all sending, this. You're redeploying agents from the northern border down to the southern border. You're asking DOD to get involved. There's National Security Council meetings on this. I believe the Secretary of DHS even said people are working 24-7. All of those actions add up to a crisis. You're not doing all of that if it's simply a challenge at the department. The border is a challenge every day. Even on a good day, it's a challenge you're in the middle of a crisis because you have numbers skyrocketing, whether it's UACs or families or even single adults, and there's no end in sight. You have to remember January and February are historically low traffic months uh, because because of the weather and how cold it gets in the desert. You get into March, April, May, these are the high traffic months into June historically that we have seen. So we're not even there yet. So you're going to see higher and higher numbers and you're going to see more and more of that, what we call the catch and release individuals coming across the border, picked up and then released. Uh, and then we saw obviously cases of, of some of those migrants testing positive for COVID uh, in Brownsville, Texas, just some reporting over the last several days. So there's a number of things that are concerning here. And I agree, uh, I think they need to be straight with the American people. There's a crisis going on at the border. And um, you know, you mentioned um, some of those, uh, some of the facilities and some other things that were going on 72 hours in border patrol custody. I just, you know, go back to 2019, we had probably any number of two dozen members of Congress down on our facilities with pictures and with cameras. And I would say, how many have visited to date? None, none. What does that mean to you? Because I, I think what they're trying to say is obviously it was Trump you know, and there was a narrative about President Trump and, and some of the, the measures and procedures that we were doing. And somehow they want to say it's not a crisis. It's not to that level. Uh, and I just I disagree with them. They were about at 80,000, almost 80,000 illegal apprehensions in the month of January. You're likely to see that closer to 100,000 come February. And that that's reaching pretty historical proportions. If I remember correctly, Chad, you yourself said that you had some regrets or that the zero tolerance policy under the Trump administration could have been better handled. Isn't that true? Yeah. Oh, of course. Absolutely. What could have been done differently? And if you were to suggest not that they're necessarily going to listen to the Biden administration, what would you suggest they do right now? Well, these are these are that's two different questions. So obviously there's zero tolerance and then there's just the, the, the surge of both families and UACs and others as they come across this border in a in this type of environment. I think first and foremost, you need to have strong language and you need to have enforcement. Folks need to understand that if you need to come to the border because you are fearing for your life, uh, because you have a legitimate fear that there is a mechanism for you for your claim to be adjudicated. And that is a legitimate reason uh, to come. And of course you can do that at a port of entry. You don't have to cross illegally. You can do that at a port of entry. Obviously we got criticized because we were metering at ports of entry, only letting in so many a day. Biden administration is doing the exact same thing. Haven't changed it a bit, doing the exact same thing. So there's ways to come and to have your asylum claim heard. Uh, But again, if you're coming for economic reasons, what we know, 
or you're coming to rejoin your family, what we call family reunification, those are not reasons to come here illegally. You have to find a legal mechanism, a legal path to come here for those reasons. Run quick question from your vantage point. Should an undocumented person at the border be vaccinated? Um, I think that's a difficult question to answer right now, just because there's millions of Americans. There's even DHS frontline workers that are not vaccinated at the moment. Uh, so I need to, we need to make sure that we take care of Americans and particularly our front, our first responders as they come into contact with these individuals. Real quick, I've got about 35 seconds. You know, this week in Holtville, California, 13 migrants were killed in a tragic accident. They came through a hole in the brand new reinforced border wall. Does that tell us that the border wall itself is futile? No, absolutely not. Uh, Again, a border wall system is designed for that impedance and denial. Uh, They'll have to see exactly how this particular breach occurred uh, and picked it up. And I know they've gone back to the videotape to look at that. But there is no border wall system that is impenetrable. Uh, you're going to, you know, the bad guys uh, are going to find ways to take down portions of the wall. What you want to make it is harder and harder and more difficult to do that so that you're able to respond in a more timely fashion. That's what the border wall system is designed to do. Not only that physical infrastructure, but the cameras, which they're looking at, which they've been able to piece back together. And so, Major, you brought up, you know, we talked about January 4th earlier on, you know, the first thing the Capitol Police did uh, after January 6th, what did they do? They put up a, they put up a fence. It's about 13 feet high. It's got concrete barriers, uh, to protect their, their building and obviously the lawmakers inside. And if it's okay for the U S Capitol, it's gotta be protect portions of our, our Southern border. Chad Wolf has been our special guest. He was the last acting secretary of the Department of Homeland Security. For our radio audience, we need to say, say, stay, we need to say, forgive me, farewell. But for CBSN and our podcast listeners, stay tuned for the Takeout Outtake Especial. I'm Major Garrett. See you there in a second. CBS News. This is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back. I'm Major Garrett. This is your Takeout Outtake Especial. Our special guest, Chad Wolf. He was the last acting secretary of the Department of Homeland Security in the Trump administration. Uh, Mr. Secretary, Mr. Acting Secretary, Chad, as we've been saying, uh, a philosophical question. I know you've heard it. I just haven't had a chance to ask it to you. It has been said by those who advocate on behalf of undocumented immigrants that no human being is illegal. Philosophically, What do you think about that? Well, I think the way that I would answer that is uh, individuals trying to enter our country illegally, um, you know, should be apprehended and should be um, processed accordingly. So this idea that you have individuals coming into the country, have no legal right to be here uh, and that they should just be led into our communities uh, without any screening process, without any immigration. I mean, it's why we have immigration law. It's why we have the Immigration and Naturalization Act. There is law on the book that Congress has passed that says folks that are crossing the border, whether it's the Southwest border, Northern border, or any other border, illegally and not at a port of entry is against the law. Uh, it's a felony. Uh, well, sorry, it's a misdemeanor and then a felony. Um, in most cases, you know, their second time. Um, and so it needs to be dealt with. And this idea that you can just turn a blind eye to it and parole people in or, uh, you know, reduce penalties, which they do in the immigration bill that I mentioned earlier, uh, they reduce penalties for folks that have come in, have to leave and come back in. Um, 
look, our, our, you know, you need to protect the country. You need to have lawful immigration. I've always said that there is a place for immigration it needs to be lawful. Um, it needs to be based on, on some form of merit at the end of the day. Um, and so this idea of enforcing immigration law that some people have an aversion to it, I don't quite understand it. Do you have any trouble with the terminology alien? Uh, no, because it's what Congress uh, has called these individuals in immigration law. It's in the Immigration Naturalization Act. If Congress has a, you know, an issue and they want to change that to a non-citizen, I know that that's part of the immigration bill that's been up there. I think that's a little dangerous, right? Because again, this gets into a little bit of the weeds of immigration uh, law at the moment, but there's a difference between citizens. There's a difference between non-resident citizens. There is a difference between illegal aliens. They all have different benefits. They all have different processes. And so when you try to lump them in all as a non-citizen, I think that's going to change, you know, obviously 25, 30 years of immigration law. It's going to make it more difficult at the end of the day to uh, to separate those that are coming here legally with visas, on work visas, illegally. And you've got to figure out a way to deal with each of those populations a little differently. As I understand it, the Biden administration wants to scrub the word alien from as many federal documents as it can. Do you oppose that? I would say that that's a, that's a, that's a question for Congress. They're going to need to do that through law. Because right now, uh, I use the word illegal alien, I think a lot of other folks, because that is the right terminology to use in law. That's what our law says. That's how we train our, our DHS law enforcement asylum officers, our law enforcement officers. That's the terminology because, again, that terminology and that population has different benefits, different processes than others. And so you want to make sure that you're providing those benefits, those resources to the right population at the right time. Chad, uh, we have uh, some fun and games in this particular segment. I know that was philosophical and policy, but I simply can't help myself. And you're uh, someone I wanted to ask those questions to, so I thank you for the indulgence. Uh, the uh, fun and games part. So uh, we ask every single guest. The show is in its fifth year, so we've gotten a wide range of answers, and the audience loves them. So take these three questions in any order you wish to take them. Uh, most influential book in your life, uh, all-time favorite movie or one of your favorite movies, and uh, if you're on a long flight or a long drive, what kind of music, if you're really going to get into something and really enjoy it, are you most likely to listen to? Wow, those are, those are actually very, very good questions. Uh, so favorite movie, favorite movie, that's a tough one. Again, uh, love Braveheart. Uh, big fan of it. Any type of action movie, I usually go for. Great cinema, terrible history. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, you know, any type of World War II movie, big fan of. Big fan of Tom Hanks and, and all of that. So, uh, certainly would would go down that route. Music, uh, that's a tough one. I, I grew up in Texas, uh, so I'm partial to country music. So, I think on a long drive or a long flight, you would you would likely see a little bit of um, both country, uh, as well as a little 90s rock. Uh, that's when I grew up uh, a little bit in high school in the early 90s. So um, so, uh, so a little bit of Hank Williams, a little bit of Nirvana, yeah, right? Yeah, well, that's it. Exactly. I've got both of those <laughs> on my playlist. So it's uh, very good. As far as a book, uh, you know, I haven't, unfortunately, I haven't read a book in four years. Uh, most of my reading over the last four years have been issue briefs and, and things of that nature. So uh, but, right. But the most influential book in my life I read for the first time when I was 21, East of Eden by John Steinbeck. So a lot um, of, uh, you know, I grew up as a, go in that direction. Yeah, I, I grew say. up as a history buff. So I've, I've written, you know, uh, read a lot about uh, TR, uh, about Truman, about Roosevelt, uh, Nixon. So, you know, one one book doesn't stand out above others uh, for me. Just uh, a lot of it was able to educate me about, um, you know, what came in the past because the past is is the future. So. 
Uh, I think you can yes. learn a lot of from the from what we're doing today from the past. Right, uh, Hank Williams, Nirvana, or uh, George Jones and Nine Inch Nails. That's Chad Wolf's playlist, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, right, I got I got the other two yeah. ones. Right, yeah, right, that's pretty good. <laughs> Right. Chad Wolf, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for the time. Thank you for your expertise. Thanks for you for taking all the philosophical policy and other annoying questions that I like right. to pose. It's been a pleasure. Thanks. Thanks. The Takeout is produced by Arden Fari, Jamie Benson, Sarah Cook, Ellie Watson, Zoe Poindexter, and Jake Rosen. CBSN production by Eric Susanen, Grace Seegers, and Daniel Peebles. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Takeout Podcast. That's at Takeout Podcast. And for more, go to takeoutpodcast.com. The Takeout is a production of CBS Audio. If you like The Takeout, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey survivor 46 is here and so is on fire the only official survivor podcast and we have a twist this season the winner of survivor 45 d Vyadaris, will be joining us every week we're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments the how and the why things happen and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me a survivor winner listen to on fire the official survivor podcast wherever you get your podcasts Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money, and maybe more importantly, on your life. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.